Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hi there, welcome to Ed's Up. So delighted today to have Dr. Patricia Cool with us as our guest. Dr. Cool is the Bezos Family Foundation Endowed Chair in Early Childhood Learning and the co-director of the University of Washington Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. Welcome to Ed's Up, Dr. Cool. Well, thank you. We're delighted to have you. Uh, Dr. Cool has been in Mississippi to do a presentation. She was generous enough to allow us to interview her for the podcast, so we are so excited about the work that she has done and how it informs our work in early childhood education. So you've got a wonderful uh, resume. You have all these accolades. You have pioneered brain research for in young children. Internationally, you've done work all over the world. Tell us about how you came into the work that you do. Well, it, it's an interesting background. I, uh, I had a niece who was deaf. And I remember one day we were playing softball, and this was, I was probably eight or nine, and didn't really understand what it meant to be deaf. And there was a ball coming for a very fast pitch, which ended up in a very hard hit baseball, that was flying towards her head. I saw it, screamed, she didn't hear it, and it hit her. And I remember thinking to myself, you mean that she can't hear at all? And well, what does that mean with regard to communication? And then I had met her for the first time that day and understood that she had no language whatsoever. Uh, sign language, this was a long time ago, sign language was not very well understood, so she was not getting language input of any kind. And I remember being so intrigued by that and talked to my father about it. He was a chemist. And he said, well, you know, there are uh, things to do in this world that, that might have to do with people and learning and the brain. And that stuck with me. And so as I went to college and pursued uh, topics of interest, I just kept being drawn to the capacities of the human brain and how we get them and what does it take to activate them. You know, what's the role of society and what's the role of the brain you're born with? How does it work? And I've followed it for a lifetime. Amazing. And um, again, you have really pioneered the way we study how children learn. And from what I understand, the science has so evolved in just the last 10, 15, 20 years. Things that we can explore now. Yes. That we, and would you talk about mm. some of those innovations? I think what's incredible is that we now have the capacity to look inside the brain. You don't have to cut it open. You can actually use these uh, imaging techniques that uh, even 20, 15 years ago were only for adults. And we were the first in the world in about 2010 to put an awake baby in an MEG machine. And magnetoencephalography, it's a very long word, but MEG for, for short, perfectly safe, non-invasive. Um, it looks like a hairdryer from Mars, but it is uh, noiseless and safe. And you, with the help of physicists and engineers, you can actually produce a movie that shows activity in the brain in the areas that are attracted by what the person is doing. So a little baby uh, listening to a word or looking at a picture 
or being touched on the hand. You can actually see where in the brain that activity is and how it changes as that baby develops, listens to a particular language, grows up in a particular family, and has particular kinds of experiences. It is just a miracle. That is so fascinating. And so if I understand correctly from your research that you know, babies come here, they are born with the capacity to learn. They, it's not something that has to be turned on later on, but that the brain is born ready to learn, you know, barring that there's no significant brain injury or something like that, but they are born ready to learn. And then the brain basically has to be mapped or programmed like a computer. So how does that happen? That, that's exactly right. So mm-hmm. one of the, the brain imaging techniques that we have actually allows us to see the structure of the brain right from the beginning, not the movie from functional imaging, but a kind of snapshot of what's the, what are the structures of the brain and how are they connected? And what that studies, what those studies show is that at birth, all of the areas are actually there. So that if you uh, say a word to a baby, that word will be processed in the auditory centers of the brain on the, you know, the over your ears on both sides of your head. A visual stimulus like a picture will be processed in the back of your brain in the occipital lobe. So these lobes all exist, they all have their specialties. They're not yet connected. They're not yet programmed. It's like you've got a brain that's completely ready to learn, but expects experience. It's like imagine a computer sitting there waiting to be given something to do. Um, You have to program it. You have to wire it. In the case of the brain, you actually have to connect those areas with the synapses and long-range connections, or the specialty areas can't talk to one another. And experience, that means When we're talking to babies, we're playing with babies, we read to them, we smile at them, we interact with them, we play motor games with them, show them objects. All of that is building and enriching the um, brain so that it becomes uh, an area of, of specialists. So culture comes in, culture, language, habits, uh, belief systems, values, they all get crafted in the brain through experiences, all everyday experiences that we have with our children are mapping their brains. And if I understand correctly, that put, one of the most important things about that, though, is that it's social. It's with a, It's not the same as putting a child in front of a television or in front right. of a computer and running educational games or programs or anything, that there's something. Can you talk about the importance yes. of the social connection? Well, so we've learned through really careful experiments that parts of the baby's brain behave like a computer, meaning they they can take into account the statistics of what they're experiencing. The sounds of one language as opposed to another have different kinds of sounds and different frequency of sounds. So we say that babies learn statistically because their um, their capacities are, in a sense, computational. So that was a finding. That's a major finding, uh, that, that kids' brains are reacting to the most frequent events, things they hear and see most often. But the even more important and foundational discovery is that that computational power for the littlest babies is not put to work until it's in a social context. So let me give you an example. We um, exposed babies to a second language for the first time around nine months. Why uh, at that time? Well, our studies had shown us that between six months and 12 months, a very big transition, a critical period in development occurs. 
prior to that time, babies can differentiate, like hear the differences between all the sounds of all languages, two Russian sounds, two Spanish sounds, two English sounds. You can show in experiments that they can hear those fine differences. By 12 months of age, their brains have narrowed, in a sense, specialized to the language that they're hearing in their culture, the language or languages that their parents speak. So we started to study how is that learning taking place between 8 and 10 months. And we demonstrated this statistical principle. They're listening to the frequency of things. But when we expose them to the new language, so Mandarin Chinese in our first experiment, Spanish in our second experiment, we demonstrated that if they had a live talker, babies are on the floor, moms are sitting behind them, the tutor is speaking in either Mandarin or Spanish to the babies with books and toys, the learning was so incredible that after five year, five hours, five hours, those kids' ability to hear the differences in Mandarin Chinese sounds was just as good as the kids in Taiwan or in China who had been listening for 11 months by that time. So they could absorb it automatically in that very complicated and fun social setting. Then we decided to um, produce DVDs, gorgeous DVDs that... Everything exactly the same, same room, same toys, same tutor. But now the babies are on the floor watching this video. And you could see that the babies crawl up to that video. They touch the screen. The graduate student said, oh, they're going to learn even better because they're so attentive. And it's, in a sense, less complex than the, than the other situation, the live situation. Turns out the only place, the only situation in which babies learn is in that live social setting. The kids who were exposed over DVD learned nothing. Their scores, whether tested behaviorally or with brain measures, they looked exactly like the control group that had never heard a word of the foreign language. They were just exposed to English, you know, as a control. So the social brain is in charge, at least early in development. The social brain and its engagement is essential for learning. And this is very big new news because a lot of parents and a lot of business leaders, legislators, um, all of us tended to think of the social parts of our brain as the soft stuff. You know, the stuff that's, oh, well, that's being nice to people and EQ and all these other social skills. That's a, that's a soft skill. Hard skills are language and math and, you know, the hard stuff. Brain science is showing us that the social brain is a kind of gateway to this cognitive learning, that without the social brain engaged of the child in a live social setting, as complicated as it is, that learning doesn't take place. And when we watch what the babies are doing, they're tracking the eye movements of the tutor. If the tutor holds up a new toy and names it in Mandarin, the babies are looking at the toy, looking at her, looking at the other baby, and figuring out that this tutor is naming the toy in, the new, in a new language. And they pick that up as though it was the simplest task in the world. And, but that it's happening in a very complex way. In a right? very the complex interaction way. of all of those It's this pieces. messy situation. There's another baby or two next to you. And the tutor's got the toys and the book. And she's waving them. And the kids are all active and looking and moving. And so I think that's what tempted the graduate students to say, you know, I think they're going to learn under that video condition better. And sure enough, data, you can't substitute for data, real science. 
The babies learn nothing in that video situation. They must have been entertained by the colors or the movement. But in, as far as the machinery that governs cognitive, complex cognitive learning, it was the messy, real, native kind of our whole biology put to work the way we evolved to acquire language. And that links the social need and motivation for language. Socially, it's both information to see where someone else is looking, and it's motivation because you're face-to-face -face with someone else. And that, too, seems to be special for the brain, for all of us, for the babies and for us. And so this discovery that the social brain plays such a vital role in complex learning was a surprise to the scientific world. It was a surprise to me. And to be able to say the social brain gates early learning, I think is a very powerful message for parents, definitely for teachers, but for all of us because our brains are activated our whole lives by face-to-face. -face. And our teenagers who are increasingly buried in social media, it's important for us to not isolate ourselves or our children with machines excessively because we evolved to be face-to-face -face learners and face-to-face -face social beings. And our brains work that way. So we have to keep that in mind. Really practical you know, advice for all of us about how we tend to you know, get our heads and our computers and our phones and the media. And I see more and more children you know, out in public who are not playing with other children, but who are on, you know, on a phone or on an iPad and you know, completely absorbed in that. And I think we all have to check ourselves on yes. that and try to you know, ensure that we are remaining engaged with our fellow human beings rather than exactly. being held hostage in our own, of our own making yeah, to I, all these I, devices. But. I think that's absolutely true. In our own household, to academics and a child, we had to set rules about phones, that phones were absolutely off uh, during dinner. And we were talking to one another about our days and interacting, really taking a read on where we are um, as individuals and, and what, what happened during that and that day. And as soon as we, it was a little difficult to begin, I have to admit, <laughs> but once we did it, it, it was fabulous. And I was recalling my own father, who back in the days of big black plastic phones and a family of seven, he would very ceremoniously go to the wall and unplug that phone. And we were going to have conversations for dinner. And that's what I just love it, and yeah. the fact that we could do that again. It's increasingly hard in our busy lives to do that, but I think you can't underscore the importance of that, not only for the child, but for yourself. Yes, absolutely. I think, for me, one of the things that seems really groundbreaking about your research is I think everyone that has... We've long known that there is a window of opportunity when children are most efficient in their learning. Mm -hmm. or that, but it seems like from your research that, that that window is much earlier than we previously yes. thought. I think we kind of thought, well, babies, you know, they don't see that well. They don't hear that well. So, you know, the, the infant years, are they're important. But, I mean, it's really when they're about three, yes. four, five that they're really learning. Yeah. And you found something very right. different from that. Well, I think most of us, um, probably even myself as a, as a young woman thought that children, the interacting with children became important when they could talk back, right? So that means when they're three and when they're four and they're five. 
The astounding thing about the research is to look at what the brain is doing and how the brain is learning. And some of the simplest facts tell us something very important, like the size of the brain. The size of the brain in at year one, year two, year five. Year five, when kids go to school, their brains are 92% of their total adult size. Wow. It's 72% by the, ed, by the end of their first year. So what's growing in that brain? As I said, the areas are there, but they're not connected. The wiring is taking place, both at the short um, synaptic level and at the long-term fibers, like telephone wires, allowing all of the neurons and the areas to speak to one another. And just like a corporation or a business that has many specialties around the building, without ways to communicate, you can't do anything important. And our own brains, when you just think about daily life, listening, speaking, writing, um, emoting, um, you know, acting, you are using all of the areas of the brain. So we are, for the first time, able to see those brains in action and show that in the very earliest you know, months of development. The change between six and 12 months is astounding. Before the child's first birthday, that baby changes from a citizen of the world who can discriminate all the sounds of all languages to a specialized brain that's hearing the differences only for the sounds of the language that the parents or other caregivers are speaking to the baby. And we not only see this for sounds and language, we see this for visual recognition. We see this for the sense of touch. We see this for recognition of objects. We see this for other indications of very complex cognitive skills that the baby's beginning this initial mapping right in the earliest phases of life as the child interacts with us in all of these domains. So a surprise from neuroscience is that the baby from zero to 12 months is a child whose brain is not only growing, but the wiring inside is enabling tremendous things that will not only prepare that child for school, but to prepare that child for the workplace. Now that sounds like a long time away, but it's not. These skills begin in the crib, and these skills build upon one another. It's like a ladder, and you keep growing your connections and ability to do more and more. And so I think that understanding how the ability to read begins in the crib, that the ability to tinker and play and problem solve. Kids are problem solving as they stack blocks. They're problem solving as they face situations in which their old solution didn't work and they have to invent a new one. These are the skills that these are baby-sized versions, but those skills are challenged every day in the workplace as our people have to be technically savvy, verbally adept, and very flexible thinkers. And so I think this chain of events that prepares us for sophisticated work starts way earlier than anyone ever imagined. Uh, and it's not that the early learning is a, a drill, so drill and kill, not no. that. It is a playful, exploratory, lots of interaction with other mates, your friends, your little friends, and with adults that challenge the child to solve a new problem, to go where they haven't been before, to explore, to feed that curious brain, and thereby grow it. And so that's what's new. 
So you've done a lot of research also in children who are in bilingual homes, some really fascinating research, uh, and you showed even in in babies who have had opportunities to, to articulate or to hear two different languages spoken to them frequently, that even at a year old, their problem-solving abilities are, are different yes. uh, con- in contrast to monolingual right. children. So w- we all thought, a lot of us thought, that dual language learning would confuse a child and that one ought to delay, and and hence we, when do we teach second languages in the United States? We teach it in high school, and we don't do it with natural, social, playful, the way our biology set us up to learn, but instead, you know, on a blackboard, maybe now on a smart board, uh, a kind of declension-based analysis of the grammar. Well, that's a big turnoff, and the biology uh, of our brains suggests, and studies have shown, the best time to learn a second language is in the first seven years of life. And past age seven, it gets harder and harder and harder. And beyond puberty, it gets really hard. And so we've been doing studies where we're looking at uh, the learning of a second language in the laboratory with these exposure studies of Mandarin and Spanish, which establish that they can learn right in the beginning during these early periods. We've also done other studies in which we look at the brain's of kids who are growing up in homes in which mom speaks one, dad speaks the other, and they're bilingual. And at 11 months, we can see that these kids' brains are activated both for the Spanish language, in this case, and English, and their English activation is identical to the monolingual. So nothing's suffering. Both languages are simply following the process that children who are monolingual are following, but just with one language. But that's such an important point that, you know, we have historically said, oh, well, if you try to teach a child two languages at an early age, they're going to get all confused and they're not going to be good at either one. Nope. And your research... Uh, it contradicts that. Mm-hmm. It, it establishes that there is no confusion and that if you look at word acquisition, you have to count the words that they know in both Spanish and English. You don't count them twice, agua and water, or not two, they're one. But if you give children credit for every every word they have knowledge of in either language, they equal or surpass at every age the knowledge of words that a monolingual has. So there's absolutely no evidence, and then that they're confused. And then secondly, we can see there are advantages. And uh, when you look at the brain, we can see that prefrontal cortex that's uh, associated with attending and you know switching attention when it's appropriate to do so, impulse control, prefrontal cortex is more active in bilinguals than in monolinguals. Now that's interesting because prefrontal cortex is what you know sets attention and also has to toggle back and forth. If baby's hearing mom speak Spanish and dad speak English, the baby's job is like, oh, okay, which machinery am I putting to work right now? Who's talking? And that toggling back and forth looks like it's really good for the brain. It's protective later in life. Um, bilinguals have Alzheimer's detected in their brains less frequently. And while we're all going to cognitively age, bilinguals age more slowly. So there's a benefit to this exercise that prefrontal cortex is getting. And we did tests in little 11-monthers, 11-monther bilinguals. It's a baby-sized test. So the baby's Mm -hmm. sitting on mom's lap. And we put a plastic box, you can see through it, in front of the baby. And we put a toy in it through the one open door. So let's say the door is open on the right. 
So we put the toy in the box and the baby has a chance to reach out, hold it for a few minutes and has to give it back. After you do that for a while, the baby has a habit, just like we all have to solving a problem. You go in on the right side and you'll get your toy. Then we, we kind of switch it. We, we give them a harder problem. We take the box right in front of them. They see us rotate it. Now the door is open on the left. Okay, this is a baby size, you know, neuroplasticity question. Can that baby figure out that I've got to change my habit and go in the other door to get the toy? They definitely want to. It's whether they've got the machinery to put that all together. So when you do that, our, our tests on, a, on the whole say that the monolingual baby struggles with that. The goat keeps, we've got videos where the baby keeps going back to the side that worked, the right side, over and over and over again, even though there's no door there. And they just look flummoxed. Bilingual baby tries that old door, but very quickly adapts, neurally plastic enough to go, hmm, there is another <laughs> way. So the bilingual brain has practice at there's two ways of naming things, there's two ways of describing something. Maybe there are two different attitudes towards this in the two different cultures. And so that brain gets the exercise, it's seeing it a different way. So I think these, if we could see the wheels turning in there, you would see that a little 11 month or thinking, there's another way to get in there, and I'm going to try this other way. And so statistically, the bilinguals are at 11 months are much better than the monolingual kids at solving this novel problem. And that's neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. It shows that the brain is so plastic in the beginning, the two languages get mapped just as efficiently as one, and two languages mapped in the brain has these advantages. I've watched households where you know, one parent speaks one language, another parent speaks another exclusively to the child, and the baby just babbles to that in mm. the different languages. They babble to one parent in Spanish and babble to the other parent in English just as you know, so we have, seamlessly. There's a new study that I didn't even have a chance to talk about this morning. In one of the studies in which we exposed babies at nine months to Spanish rather than Mandarin, we had the same effect. They learned the sounds of Spanish in that 12 sessions, about five hours of experience. Another student in the lab said, I wonder after they've learned perceptually to distinguish the sounds of Spanish, whether it would make any difference to their babbling. Now they're only 11 months. She brought the kids back in a month later, so now they're 12 months old, and she's got two speakers, a Spanish speaker and an English speaker, and she records them playing to, with those two people. And she shows that the 12 months are babbling in a way that's exclusive to Spanish when they play with the Spanish speaker and exclusive to English when they play with the English speaker. So this wiring in the brain, some of which I showed this morning, of the connections between listening and speaking, this these brain connections, we can actually measure the strength of them now. We can see them develop more in kids who are being talked to a lot. And what it says is that as the perceptual system learns, the production system is also learning and will automatically socially select the culturally appropriate um, way to engage with that other person. I, I find that just amazing yes, yes. Um, to see the capability of these they really are little, little geniuses ones. they right? are they little really are. linguistic <laughs> geniuses and uh, they come that way 
But look at the job we have to do, yes. right? Obviously, in the United States, many parents only speak one language. Right. So what can they do if they are that parent who, okay, I don't have a spouse who speaks another language. I don't have an au pair or a housekeeper or anyone who right. can speak another language. How can they right. find those opportunities? Right. Well, I think that there, there are two approaches. One is to try to develop a play group. Uh, look in your neighborhood, look in your city to see whether or not Seattle's a city with many speakers of many different languages. So it's you, it's actually possible to find a parent who's uh, bringing up children at home and uh, that is speaking French to the baby or Spanish or Russian to the baby and develop little play groups and let the kids play with one another three times a week for you know, an hour. So we don't have to go out and give them I, lessons. No, learning I, d- in a, I don't think they're you do. They're going to learn I, it so, so they, much more efficiently from other children. Exactly. And then, well, we've got another creative solution, but this one I love, but it requires having kids in schools. So I went to Madrid, Spain, to run experiments in their infant education centers. Uh, Spain and other countries in Europe and in Asia have governments that are really helping parents by building um, neighborhood schools that are subsidized by the government in Madrid. All neighborhoods have infant education centers. Parents pay only what they can afford. Kids go from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. They get free lunch, and these are lunches to die for. They're very good. And we convinced the Ministry of Education that we could take a brain-based approach to a 60-minute, in our first study it was 60 minutes a day, the second study, which we just finished, is 45 minutes a day, and show that we can ignite learning in the babies starting at seven months. And the study's results, um, we finished the first one in 2017, showed that across four uh, schools, uh, 300 kids, in a randomized control trial, that the typical Madrid... the gold standard in scientific research. Exactly, the gold standards. The controls had Madrid's typical bilingual education, which was a few songs and nursery rhymes per week, a little bit of reading in English. And we did what the brain-based science says to do, and that is highly interactive. Games that revolved around words and sentences, Um, you know, everything from the grocery store game to the rain game. The kids, whether they were babbling and just going, uh, uh, or whether they were trying to produce English words, we got them talking. They heard a lot of language. It was very social and playful. And the data are astounding. From five to 10 times more words learned after 18 weeks in all four age groups from the earliest, you know, the one-year-olds all the way up to the three-year-olds, they lear- we ignited learning in a way that even we couldn't imagine. And now the second experiment that we finished, we I want to scale this up. I want to bring this to America. And we demonstrated that um, we could train the tutors with software. So I created software called Sparkling. And it takes two to three weeks to train uh, a tutor and it's very interactive training. It's on software with video, and they have to answer. There are 37 quizzes in there, and they have to get through all the six principles and learn uh, how to the method for our uh, brain-based um, education program. And then they have access to the curriculum. We have one for zero to three and one for three to five. And that has also shown we're going to publish that um, very soon, uh, this week, I think, uh, demonstrating that that learning is also phenomenal. So now that we can use software 
to train the teachers and the tutors. I think that it could go any place, and we're hoping to bring it to the United States very soon. Wonderful. Because for parents, having a school-based program, 45 minutes or an hour a day, in which your child could have the benefits of being bilingual, uh, that's what parents need. Uh, They're not going to be able to learn that second language themselves. And kids are so good at mapping the language that if we're speaking to them, for example, my fractured French, if I'd used that with my daughter, she wouldn't have learned it very well because they map so exquisitely what it is, the grammar, the words, the sounds. You want to give them native the culturally embedded language. And are you developing this in other languages you're doing? So you did this with children who are native Spanish speakers right. who are you know, learning English, but this, are you going to do this it, in other languages as well? This works or? with every language. The method and curriculum will work with any language. It can be culturally adapted. Our next iterations are going to work not only on the new language, but the home language. Our goal with DLLs in the United States is to toggle back and forth week by week using the curriculum in Spanish and then using the curriculum in English. So if they're playing the game and they're doing everything in Spanish and the next week they're doing everything in English, what you're doing is doing exactly what a parent, a home does when mom speaks English and dad speaks Spanish. That brain's toggling back and forth to go, oh, this object has two names. It's, you know, this and this. Mm -hmm. And so we hope to... Uh, demonstrate that you can build a bilingual brain in school by using both languages because you only get the advantage if you keep the home language going. Our goal is not to supplant these wonderful uh, languages and cultures with English. No, the goal is to produce a bilingual mind, one that has the cultural benefits and language and nuances and values and culture of both of them. And so we know the parents at home are speaking the home language. But maybe in school we can buttress both by bringing both of them up at the same time and thereby give, we will test in these new examples, uh, executive function skills before and after. And our hypothesis is we're going to advance executive function skills in exactly the way that we imagine is going on in a, a natural bilingual home. I'm sorry, Dr. Cool, but I just can't help myself with my background in public policy of thinking about you know the many states that have oh, English only that mm. we should only be speaking in. And, yes, and that's counterproductive. It's to counterproductive. The of yes, children. it is. I mean, it's not we what you're to, finding in your research. I think and, there are so many parents who we could deploy in schools. We want native speakers. So all of these parents who have who are teaching their own children uh, with their home language that is other than English. Bring them into the schools. Let them be the natural tutors for our children. Uh, Keep it as um, straightforward as possible, but deploy all these skills that uh, people have to bring up the population as a whole. We need to join the rest of the world. If America wants to be competitive, if our business leaders want us to be competitive, if our government wants us to be competitive, we need to bring children zero to five up to speed on all their skills and prepare them for school and for the workplace. But particularly in the arena of languages, we will be left behind if we're the country that has only monolingual speakers and the rest of the world has um, not only the dual and 
and try language skills, but has the executive functions and the health benefits and economic benefits because the job market is more open for them that, that we do not have. And so you can put it right down to an economic question. Which would we rather be? The country that can employ our youth to do the best jobs or one that has to go look at other countries for the workforce that is the most sophisticated. It's a matter of the country's reputation and competition as the world leaders in innovation. Well, I want to wrap us up with, you know, if there are parents out there who say, I, you know, I don't have all of your education. I'm not that prepared to be a teacher for my children. What is the message to them? When, you're ba- when you have a baby and your children are young, Talk to them, engage with them. What what are the lessons that they can take away at I a think very basic the, level? I think the first thing parents should realize is that they're the first and best teachers of the baby. You're the one programming that brain. Every time you interact with in any way positively with that baby, you're growing connections in the brain in a very positive way. With regards to language, the best thing you can do is talk to the baby, but not at the baby. Engage with what I like to call, and others are calling, parentees, that high-pitched, slow, kind of, you know, hello, how are you? I mean, it, it automatically locks them to you. We've shown the sound structure is better in that kind of slow, exaggerated speech. Linguistically, it's a better signal. From the standpoint of the social brain, it's a hook. It just grabs them. They will just stare into your eyes and look for all the world as though they're just open to your input, and they are. The brain science is saying they are. So our studies show that the prevalence of parentees, the more moms, fathers, and other adults in the family who are there talking in that special, slow deliberate and socially engaging way, the better though that child's language skills. And in fact, uh, one of our newest studies, it'll be coming out on Monday, and I think you'll, you'll hear some press about it. We can coach parents by explaining to them what the brain is doing, how talk matters from parents, and that this parenting style is that socially engaging signal that turns that brain on. And when you tell parents that, what do they do? They talk more to their children. They use more parenties. There are more conversational turns, that back and forth going, and the brain results are astounding, and the kids' language outcomes are better. So this is cost-effective, right? Not fancy toys, not fancy books, not computers. It's you. And so you talk about everything that you're doing. Okay, sweetheart, now we're going to, I'm going to change your diaper, and I'm going to get the wipes. And just say everything that you do, everything you're seeing, you may be thinking to yourself, this child is not, they may not understand everything that you're saying, but they're getting the basics of language and the interaction with you. So whatever you're just talking, even if it doesn't, it may not be meaningful to you, but just talk about everything that you're seeing, everything that you're doing when you're in the car, when you're at home, just always be talking. You're the window on their world and you're growing connections and socially bonding with them in a way that keeps them more open to learning than they would be if you're not. If you're on your cell phone all the time, if you're thinking that it's not important to connect with them, you're you're missing something foundational to uh, brain development and brain growth. 
So, so important. So our guest today, Dr. Patricia Cool, a distinguished professor and researcher, thank you for being with us on Ed's Up. Well, thank you for listening. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you. And now it's time for today's Lit Bit, because poems are a great way to not only connect with your child, but to help them understand and appreciate the beauty of language in poetry. And today we have a special poem, Ode to Teachers, that's about the difference that teachers can make in the life of a child. And it's Ode to Teachers by Pat Mora, and this is from PoetryFoundation.org. I remember the first day how I looked down, hoping you wouldn't see me. And when I glanced up, I saw your smile, shining like a soft light from deep inside you. I'm listening, you encourage us. Come on, join our conversation. Let us hear your neon certainties, thorny doubts, tangled angers, but for weeks I hid inside. I read and reread your notes praising my writing, and you whispered, We need you in your stories and questions that, like a fresh path, will take us to new vistas. Slowly your faith grew into my courage, and for you, instead of handing you a note or apple or flowers, I raised my hand. I carry your smile and faith inside like I carry my dog's face, my sister's laugh, creamy melodies, the softness of sunrise, steady blessing of stars, autumn smell of gingerbread, the security of a sweater on a chilly day. Ode to Teachers by Pat Mora. Give your child a gift of language through poetry. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 